Good evening. It's good to be back with you. It's been a while since I've gotten to uh, preach down here, and the Sunday we chose for me to do that is the Sunday that I can't even think straight. I've uh, been in, uh, been out of the country for a week and a half, and completely jet lagged, and and uh, so yeah, we'll see how this goes, but. Um, it's actually, I think, in another way, it's good timing because I got to share some thoughts with our main campus, uh, kind of my reactions to uh, the past week and a half in Europe and uh, some of the things that I felt uh, the Lord was teaching me and um, applications, and there's many more of that. I don't know if y'all, have you spoken much about the Reformation stuff that's going on? Not at all. Y'all are too cool to come out to the Burbs and hang out with us. <laughs> okay, well, if, uh, if you can handle driving 15 minutes south to our main campus, uh, next weekend we have a Reformation conference. It's the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, uh, which is kind of a big deal. Apparently not that big of a deal to Marshall because he hasn't been telling you about it, but... <laughs> Uh, we're having a conference, and uh, so real quick, if you'd like to come join us, we'd love to have you Saturday morning, uh, next Saturday morning, I will be, uh, <laughs> what? I can still send an email, Facebook. All right. Maybe you'll get a Facebook, woo. Uh, Saturday morning next week, uh, I'll be lecturing on the history of the Reformation, telling the story of the Reformation, which is may sound like that's not what I want to do for my Saturday morning, but it's actually very, uh, very fascinating. We have coffee and donuts, and from 9 to 11, um, I'm going to be telling the story of the Reformation. And then um, the other ones, okay, that one's the only one that applies to you, because the other ones will take place Sunday morning between services. I'm going to be lecturing on the theology of the Reformation, and then that Sunday night, uh, we're going to have an all-church picnic where you're, where you're welcome to come. I'm making uh, Mark Randall, our associate pastor, dressed up like uh, Martin Luther, and, uh, and he's going to be giving out Reese's Cups, uh, Martin Luther and his 95 of Reese's. Huh? Never mind. <laughs> I thought that was cool. <laughs> all right. So, <laughs> Mark Randall and his 95 Reese's. Ah, I'm jet lag. Okay. So anyway, so we've got that coming on, and then I was uh, in, in last week. Last week, I've been in the heart of the Reformation, um, and you okay? Great, are you? Just got warm. Oh, it is hot. Uh, and so it's really, I'm excited to, to, be able to, um, to be able to share a lot of that next week. So come out if you want to come to that. But um, I get to talk a little bit tonight about some of the reactions coming from that. This is a topical sermon. Um, I think you all are in Judges uh, going through that, and that's wonderful. We're in John 13 through 17 at the main campus. It's been excellent. Um, I think Mike was with you last week. Mike Aitchison was with you last week. Uh, uh, who's, that's always a treat. I hope you enjoyed that. Mike is a good friend of mine. I, I've gotten a lot of good feedback about his sermons. My favorite, uh, my favorite feedback came from my son who said, Daddy, he preaches a lot taller than you. <laughs> so, thank you, Charlie. Uh, okay, so we're going to preach Romans 8, 35. And this, this passage may seem really, 
random and uh, strange, but um, but it's it's uh, it's an important passage. It's one that kept coming to my mind as I spent my week um, in Scotland last week, and that'll be clear. Uh, that will be clear uh, as we get into it here. But uh, let me read verses thirty-five through thirty-seven. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. The word of the Lord. Lord, we pray for your guidance and help and anointing and all that you alone, Holy Spirit, can do. Uh, I do confess I, I am tired and um, a little foggy. I pray that you give me clarity, uh, that you sustain me for the next 25 minutes, uh, that you would help my friends who have gathered uh, hungry to hear from your word, that you would feed them. Lord, I don't have the ability to feed anyone, but uh, the Holy Spirit working through uh, feeble Um, unworthy preachers uh, using the inspired perfect word of God can accomplish amazing eternal things and I pray you would do that remember your promises that when we gather together like this you are with us Uh, Lord we need this message we need this encouragement and I pray that you would grant it tonight in Jesus name amen so here's let me let me tell you how I came about this. I have now visited three of our four missionary partners. The way we do missions at Tate's Creek, we of course do short-term mission trips. We support uh, missionaries around the world. Uh, We send missionaries. We do the traditional mission stuff, but uh, one of the things we did a few years ago is we went to what we call missions partnerships, where we don't want to just Uh, We just don't want to be a church that's sending out a bunch of Americans all around the world to just uh, sell a brand of American Christianity. We wanted to come around um, indigenous partners and support them in every way. And so we have these partnerships that are strategically located around the world with um, indigenous leadership there and churches that we come around, support them, not just with our our money, which that's a big part of it, but with our our time, our energy, our resources, our prayers, and so forth. And one of the big parts of that is uh, me going over there and visiting with them and um, speaking to their people, lecturing, and all these different things. And so um, I've now been to three or four uh, Missions partnerships. Uh, been to Togo, uh, West Africa, uh, with Macklin there, and um, to Mexico um, in the Yucatan Peninsula, um, of Valladolid, uh, uh, Filomeno there. And then this, this time was my opportunity to go visit our partner in Scotland, Andy Longley. And I expected this one to be the easiest, um, not just because it was Europe and, and you know you get to do Europe and all that, but, but because um, this is our heritage, this is the most connection, uh, this is where we come from theologically, you'll hear a lot about that if you come to the lecture next week. Um, and here's what I discovered. Um, I discovered it to be the darkest. Um, and that's saying something, by far, I was most burdened, most overwhelmed, uh, had feelings of oppressive um, darkness more than any of the others, and that's saying something. In Togo, um, there is a heavy presence of voodoo and um, just uh, satanic, demonic activity that is, that is flourishing alive and, 
and well. There's the influence of Islam, which is kind of taking over that region of the world. I remember preaching in Togo, vividly remember preaching while the call to prayer went out um, from the mosques all around. Um, in Mexico, you obviously had the excessive poverty and the corruption of government, which is just uh, killing its citizens. You have all these different uh, many expressions of Christian, heretical Christianity that um, the, the stuff that they believe over there is just crazy. So you're just having to combat all of these heresies just to get the foundation of the gospel right. I mean, it, it's a mess. Um, and then there's Scotland, and, and, and this is supposed to be us. This is, this is Western Enlightenment. This is the Reformation. This is our history. This is where Presbyterianism was born and where we came from. And it was the darkest. And I spent a lot of last week just overwhelmed. Um, and here's why. There is something incredibly unnerving, almost eerie, almost creepy, about a post-Christian society. Um, there's, it, it's one thing to have an unreached people to go do missions there. It's another thing to go to a, a place that um, uh, just has a small presence of the gospel and you go to do missions and support the work and all this stuff. Um, but it's a strange phenomenon to visit a place that has known the gospel, has built an entire society around the gospel, where Christianity is the foundation was the foundation of its ethics and education and science and business and art and architecture where everywhere you look there's a church beautiful church building that was once flourishing its monuments its statues their their statues that they're taking down are not confederate statues their statues they're taking down are our heroes john calvin john knox are reformers that's who they're embarrassed by a society that has known christ and is now actively seeking to rid themselves of Christ is a very haunting experience. And it was very overwhelming. You only see it if you go to Europe with the with the just the vacation lens on, which there's nothing wrong with that. Go to Europe, enjoy it, it's wonderful. And just as the purely vacation, that, that's fine. But if you go over there with a kingdom of God, gospel lens, missional living lens on, it will, it's eerie. It's creepy. All week long, I felt like I was touring the ancient ruins of Christianity. I felt like I was touring. I mean, I'm giving my life away to that. I believe this stuff. I'm selling myself out to it. This is what I do. This is, this is everything to me. And it was as if I was taking a stroll through the graveyard of the gospel. And, um, and it, was, it was eerie. And yet all the while, I was living with this lovely community of exiles. Uh, these members of the Free Church of Scotland, which is kind of the remnant of orthodoxy, the re remnant of Reformed orthodoxy, but they are so small in comparison to larger society and so hated by their society at large. They are the largest expression of not just the Reformed faith, but I would just say evangelical faith, just Bible-believing. Just, just, they actually believe the Bible. They actually believe the gospel. They actually believe in the resurrection. They're, they're the largest expression of it in Scotland, and TCPC's membership would be 10% of their entire denomination. 12,000 gather um, in free churches across Scotland on a Sunday. And so TCPC's membership alone is 10% of the entire free church of Scotland. So you've got this post-Christian uh, society um, 
that is, that is very, very militant um, against the Christian faith. Um, I, I think I can give many anecdotes. Uh, the one that I, 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 I per, per personally just found the most haunting, I suppose, because of where I am in parenting and stuff. Um, there's legislation now in Great Britain uh, where they, they, it's always been, uh, you know, the state has always been interested in, in the children um, of its country. And so they have uh, health checkups for the first three years. Uh, when you have a child in, in Great Britain, the state comes in for the first three years. They just check in on this, the well-being and the, the health of the child. Um, how are they doing? Need any help? Um, how's the breastfeeding going? Caught up on vaccines? These kinds of things. You're checking in on health. Well, there's legislation now in, in British Parliament that is going to turn that into a health and well-being checkup. And the well-being gets into the worldview of the child. Um, what are you teaching your child? Um, uh, what, are the, what are the sexual ethics of this home? What is the worldview of this home? How tolerant is the worldview of the home? And, and it is, it is, and this is what's being debated right now as we speak. Um, you know, if I were parenting over there, Marshall's parenting over there, Justin's parenting over there, state would come in and say, if you believe what you believe and you're teaching your children this, um, we'll step in uh, because that's abuse. That's abuse of their minds. Um, and so you've got this just secularization at, in its fullness with this small little band of exiles in the free church. And I kept thinking of the passage I just read to you. They are all the day long being killed, regarded as sheep for the slaughter, not, not martyrdom, not sheep to be killed, but slaughtered by Western society. Um, sla- I, I, I use this language and they said, yes, that resonates with us. That's how we feel. Um, I, I said the sermon, my sermon title, I think it's printed here. Yeah, I said, it's like y'all are slaughtered sheep of secular society. And they said, yeah, that's us. And make no mistake, it is coming here. Um, I, I, I cannot stand the paranoia of the church. I cannot stand the fear mongering of um, politics and our culture. Uh, but, there, but, it, but these fears are real. It is coming here. Uh, there are differences, and I think there are important differences. If you ever hear the narrative of what happens in Europe is exactly what's going to be happening here, they go, then we go. Um, that's not, I, I think that's too simplistic. And even our brothers and sisters in Scotland um, were quick to point that out, the differences. And the most significant difference is this right here. They, they never have gatherings like this. The next generation is gone. Um, and so if you think, I mean, for UK campus ministry workers, um, you, you, uh, the, boy, I left there thinking, praise the Lord for RUF, praise the Lord for campus outreach, praise the Lord for crew, praise the Lord for campus work. Um, the next generation, that's what was lost. And so um, there are differences um, that give me hope. But the reality of it is, is it is coming. Um, the imperialistic armies of Western secular post-Christian philosophy, they've crossed the ocean, they are on our shores, and what I experienced these past couple of weeks may very well be the normative experience for my children and grandchildren. But in the midst of the despair and darkness, um, as we pray together throughout the week, um, they were encouraging me not to get so depressed. I was trying to encourage them um, of the truths of the gospel, and we just kept coming back that Jesus Christ actually is risen from the dead. Um, 
that the gospel actually is true and triumphant and every philosophy and movement of the world has always proven false and failing. I want to return to this passage that I preached uh, my first year as senior minister of TCPC um, that I kept thinking of. Um, if nothing else to preach to my soul that needs it after last week, but I think um, our cynical and fearful hearts about the state of our world and maybe the future state of our world uh, probably need it as well. I have, uh, I have two points that I want to make from this passage. They'll, they'll be brief. I took a lot, a lot of time to set that up. But um, here are my two, two parts. The certainty of persecution and the certainty of promise. Essentially what I'm going to do is really depress you and then hopefully uh, give you some hope. So let's get depressed and then let's get hopeful. Um, the certainty of persecution. Now before we get to the certainty of persecution, it's really important for us to define persecution. Um, in our day of polarized outrage, what we tend to do is view every suffering as a form of persecution. Um, and that's not fair. Um, that victim, martyr, paranoia complex is really hurting us. Uh, Paul here is talking about suffering, but it is a specific form of suffering at the hands of Christian persecution. The verse that is so compelling here and really sets the passage apart is 36. What Paul does is he inserts this almost awkward quotation from verse 44, I mean, excuse me, from Psalm 44, that says, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It almost feels out of place in Romans 8 and awkward, but here's what he's doing. He is setting aside the persecution that we see in verse 35, that kind of litany of, of suffering. He is setting aside that suffering as unique suffering that comes to us because we are followers of Jesus. He says, for your sake, we are being killed. For your sake, we are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. So verse 36 is defining verse 35, that this is not random tribulation. This is tribulation for your sake, Jesus. This is nakedness for your sake. This is danger for your sake. This is sword for your sake. And that qualification is very, very important. I don't deny that there is a lot of suffering in this room and it is real and it is painful, but verse 36 keeps us from projecting um, any and every form of suffering upon, to, upon this text. For example, this is not the suffering. Persecution is not the suffering that is just a result of a fallen, broken world. That's real. This, this world is broken, plain and simple, and I know you have felt those effects. I know you are feeling those effects right now. Um, disease and um, heartache and depression and infertility, unemployment, um, bad markets, bad economies, natural disasters, and on and on and go. There is a suffering that we experience simply because we live in a fallen and broken world, but these sufferings are universal and they are shared by everyone. That is not what Paul is speaking of in our text. This is suffering that comes to us because we are followers of Jesus. You don't get cancer because you follow Jesus. You get cancer because you live in a fallen world. This is also not suffering that we endure because of our own sinful choices. Galatians 6 says that God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. So if I were to make a sinful choice that would cost me my job, uh, don't let me somehow turn that into a martyrdom moment. Lament my persecution, so persecuted uh, by what, by being fired or something like that. I, it, that. I wouldn't lose those things because I, I chose Jesus. I lost those things because I chose sin and sin seeks our destruction and will destroy our lives. That's not the suffering Paul has in mind here. 
Persecution is not the suffering of a fallen world, which is universal. It is not the suffering of our sin, which is universal. Persecution is a particular suffering that belongs uniquely to the followers of Jesus Christ. It is harder to be a Christian, not easier. It is easier to be a non-Christian in this world. So the, the prosperity stuff that you hear, flip it. It is more difficult to be a Christian because to be a Christian means I'm taking up an additional suffering. Everyone suffers from the fall. Everyone suffers from the consequences of bad choices. I'm choosing a unique additional suffering called persecution for following Jesus. So it's not dying from disease. It's being killed because you love Jesus. It's not your home being broken into by criminals. It is the plundering of your property because you love Jesus. It's not loss of employment because of economic downturn. It is a loss of employment because you love Jesus. It's not prison because you made bad choices. It is prison because you love Jesus. But here is why what is so compelling about the text. You might think, okay, the fall is universal. Sinful choices, suffering comes from that is universal. But persecution is not a guarantee. But Paul seems to think that Christian persecution is as inevitable as all other forms of suffering. Nobody thinks they can escape the sufferings of the fall. Nobody thinks they can escape the sufferings of sinful choices. But Paul is saying, likewise, you cannot escape the suffering of following Jesus all the day long. Meaning every day we are being killed. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. This is how the people of God are regarded. This is what we are known for. We are defined as a people who are suffering for Jesus. We are defined as a people standing in line waiting our turn to be slaughtered for Jesus. But that doesn't seem to be us. And that's the struggle. Does anyone actually think that this week you will face famine, nakedness, danger, or sword because you love Jesus? Does anyone actually think this week you will be slaughtered like a lamb as Paul promises you will? The answer is no, of course. And I vividly remember when I preached the sermon five years ago or whenever it was, um, struggling with that very disconnect. How do we who live in a prosperous, comfortable context with the freedom to practice our faith, relate to the New Testament promises that we will be persecuted for our faith? And the answer I landed on then, and an answer I am um, much more confident of now uh, after a week in Great Britain, is that the certainty of persecution for Jesus holds true, but the method of persecution is always culturally adapting. The, the certainty that you will be persecuted for Jesus is the same in every culture, in every land, in every time. The method of persecution is always adapting. The West has become so refined, so sophisticated, so progressive, so educated, so enlightened that it would never allow barbaric forms of persecution like we have seen in the past. But we are still hated. Make no mistake, we are still hated and despised. So the persecution is likewise refined, sophisticated, hidden behind the veneer of decency and tolerance. It is this subtle marginalization from society where faith and religious practices are pushed to the private spheres and away from public discourse. Where your whole belief system and way of life becomes untenable, 
holy and defensible according to the acceptable ways of the modern world, where your ethics are no longer debated as an option within public, are public arena, but wholly dismissed as intolerant and hateful and unacceptable. So what happens is either what happens in the West, this is where you're facing, I'm diagnosing it so you can see your persecution. What happens is either sheer disdain for us, like we are the ones holding back progress in the world and Christianity is the root of all societal problems. On one end you have just a hatred for us or on the other end would be kind of this patronizing ethos. Oh, you still believe those things? That's cute. One day you'll be enlightened and wake up. It is so subtle, it is so insidious, it is brilliant, and it is a powerful ploy of the evil one, much more successful than imprisoning us and killing us. Nothing spreads Christianity more than trying to kill it off. Tertullian was right to say that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It is true. Every time the world has tried to kill Christianity off or imprison Christianity, the church explodes. Every time. But the persecution we are in the midst of, and, we'll, and you younger folks in the next decades will be facing more so than ever. The persecution we face is much more insidious. We will not kill you. We will marginalize you. We will create what, what a guy by the, who's, who's the prophet of, of this post-Christian world, Leslie Newbegin, we will create what we call plausibility structures, which is this. We will create an acceptable way of thinking and living that has no room for you within it. We will question every tenet of your belief system. Our greatest thinkers will direct their intellectual assaults towards your claims. We will make you appear as fools and bigots so that you literally cannot believe what you believe and live the way you live and be an acceptable member of society. We will not kill you. We will exile you. We will not kill your children. We won't come take your children. We will make your children feel silly and foolish for believing what their archaic, blindly delusional parents believe. We won't kill your children. We will make your children embarrassed by you. We won't shut down your churches and force you underground. No, no, no. That's where churches flourish. Underground churches explode. We will marginalize your churches. That's what happened in Europe. We will marginalize your churches. We will entice your churches and lull them asleep with songs of postmodernism and the enticements of comfort and wealth and entertainment and ease and consumerism. We won't, we won't kill your churches. We will render your churches impotent. So make no mistake about it. Persecution is certain. The world still hates Jesus and followers of Jesus, and we will be persecuted. We are not the exception. In fact, we find ourselves in the heat of perhaps the most effective form of persecution ever devised by the evil one, and it's our blindness to it that is its effectiveness. We are slaughtered sheep of secular society, and we don't even see it or know it, and that's why it's so powerful. We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. That's depressing. But that's not all that we are. I spent a lot of time there because I had so many thoughts from this past week, but I can't leave us there because Paul does not leave us there and the gospel does not leave us there. Yes, the certainty of persecution. Let me spend the time we have left with the certainty of promise. It's not the end of the story. 
In verse 37, Paul responds to the certainty of persecution with this famous declaration, we are more than conquerors. Now, what's strange about that, if you look at the passage here, what's strange about that is he's talking to sheep for the slaughter. He talks about famine, nakedness, danger, sword, all the day long we're being killed. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. In the very next sentence, the very same breath, he calls them conquerors. He has a strange vision of conquering. Well, it only makes sense when you understand that the question Paul is trying to answer here. Look at the first words there in verse 37. He says, no, in all these things. No, he's answering a question in the negative. And the answer goes back to a series of questions there in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? That litany is asking a question. And his answer to that question is no. No one or nothing can separate us from Christ. That is our conquering and nothing else. If the question was, will we face tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Will we be persecuted? And the answer is yes. Yes, you will. But that's not what he is asking. That's not even what he cares to think about. He is asking, shall these things separate us from the love of Christ? And that answer is no. No, they will not. As certain as is the promise of persecution, so certain is the inability of persecution to actually work. That is if Christ is your actual goal. If you treasure anything more than Christ, then persecution can and will work. But if Christ is your treasure, then persecution will fail. Persecution can separate me from my comfort. Persecution can separate me from my freedoms, my employment, my possessions, my family, yes, even my own breath. But no, Persecution cannot separate me from my Jesus. Therefore, in all of these things, in all of this litany of suffering, we are more than conquerors because this suffering cannot work. They cannot take from me my Christ. So if Christ is my ultimate goal and aim, then no, persecution, you lost. And I am more than a conqueror. I want to ask you a question of application that was on my heart all week. As I was a part of kind of this dark, uh, depressing, secular, post-Christian society. And here's, here, I think, would be the be easiest way to ask it. What is your greatest fear? What's your nightmare? I want you to be honest with that. I want you to own that. Because I think you will find conviction on the other side of that question. I did. Do you want to know what was so convicting for me over the past week and a half or so in Europe? how depressed and fearful I found myself as I started projecting the culture of Great Britain onto our future. The, this is where we're heading. It feels inevitable. This is going to be us. And it scared me. Now, why did it scare me? This is where it's so convicting. My fears reveal my treasure. I found myself fearing the loss of things like tax-exempt status and charitable deductions. That will be the first thing to go. This will no longer be a tax-exempt organization, and the money you give to uh, the church will not, no longer be a, a tax deduction, um, which will essentially bankrupt the church. That's what happened over there. 
and um, I won't have it. I won't be able to provide for my family. The worst part about the ministry is I can't say, "Well, I'll go get another job." Like this is a calling. I got to do this. I got to preach. But you just won't be able to pay me to preach. So I don't know. I don't know. We'll be all be broke. I found myself fearing legislation that would call what I preach, what Marshall preaches, what we preach, hate crimes, which is there. It's there. It's, it's definitely there, and it's coming here, which could get me fined or even imprisoned. I found myself fearing the militant nature of the sexual revolution with its aggressive imperialism that you will bow down to this, uh, well, white Western sexual ethic or we will punish you. I, I, I found myself fearing the sexual revolution, devouring my children and grandchildren. I found myself fearing TCPC one day being a pub or a nightclub, as so many churches in their land now are. You just walk past these uh, churches where our heroes preached and were vibrant just like this, and now they are nightclubs, the most um, happening hip nightclubs in Europe or churches. I found myself fearing so many things, but behind those fears revealed my love of comfort and power and greed and vanity and family and on and on I could go. If Christ is my treasure and my reward, then my greatest fear would be losing my Christ. And I saw nothing, absolutely nothing in the secular West that can touch my Jesus. Nothing this world can do to me can undo what Jesus Christ has done for me. I love the tense there of verse 37. It is very noteworthy and significant. It does not say, and perhaps we would expect it to say, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. But Paul says, through him who loved us. It is decisive. The verb is what we call an aorist, which communicates a past decisive moment. What past decisive event does Paul have in mind? You know it before I say it. But I'll say it again, and Marshall will say it next week, and the next week, and the next week. We'll keep saying it. That moment when Jesus was regarded as a sheep to be slaughtered. The cross, the decisive moment of Christ's ultimate persecution that forever ensures that no amount of persecution will be able to separate us from Him who loves us. What is your greatest fear? If it is anything other than the loss of Jesus, then I have really bad news for you. I have uh, spent 10 days looking down what I fear may be our future, and um, many of your greatest fears may in fact be realized in the coming decades. If your, if your greatest fear is the loss of Jesus, the failure of the gospel, the ability of the world to destroy the kingdom of God and the church. If your greatest fear is the loss of Jesus Christ because your greatest treasure is the gain of Jesus, then I have really good news for you. Um, I have stared down the fullness of Western secularization and it is as weak and impotent as every other form of persecution Satan has ever devised. It cannot touch our Christ. It cannot touch our gospel. There is nothing there and there is nothing coming our way that can undo the truth of the gospel. Therefore, if Christ is your treasure, there is nothing for you to fear. Let me pray. Lord, assure our hearts now. Um, it's, 
It's easy to say you are our treasure, but we have competing treasures. Our heart is divided. We have fears. Um, it's unsettling to think about these things, but assure our hearts uh, by your sacrament now that you, Jesus, alone are our treasure and our hope and our reward and that nothing can touch the gospel. Nothing can undo what you have done for us. Um, I pray that you would fill us with the goodness of your presence and love that it might sustain us, not just today, but in the days and the years, the decades, the centuries to come. You have always sustained your people with this simple meal. I pray you would do it again tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.